You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Hello and welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. I hope you are all well. Firstly, mea culpa, I must apologize as I'm really late at uploading this story. I've tried really hard to keep to my 24th of the month's deadline, but obviously I have failed miserably this month. So now for those of you who have been listening to the podcast before, you will know that I get very excited to discover where you are listening from. I have this huge map of the world hanging on the wall just out of my cupboard and I scan it to find the cities from where you are listening. And to my joy, when looking at the website tonight, I found quite a few new additions. 85 countries now. I want to know who's in Georgia, or in Japan, or in Puerto Rico. I really would love it if you got in touch with me and tell me what the view from your window looks like. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Just search for the airing cupboard and you will recognize the logo. Anyway, enough gibberish and on to the story. So this little story is one that I've heard many times during my childhood, but I was reminded of it in the last few months and some information was made available to me to research it in more details. As the protagonists have all now died, although the facts are true to life, The smaller details and descriptions are born out of my imagination for the sake of storytelling. It is the story of Mika. She was born in Belgium in 1882 in an affluent family. She was the second out of three children. She soon grew up to become a formidable young woman. I spoke to some of her grandchildren and others who had first-hand recollection of her themselves mostly in the 80s and 90s now, and all of them said the same thing to me. She was independent, open, interested in the world around her. But the one word they all used to describe her to me was joyful. She was full of the stuff. Later in her life, as a grandmother or as a, an old family friend, she, she would arrive and walk in and immediately the house would be unrecognizable in its energy. She filled it. Each little invisible rays of her joie de vivre would travel in the corners of the darkest of rooms, altering all and everything at her contact. Her joy was transforming. She would often sit at a piano and sing, which I understand she did very well. Was she beautiful? No one really can say, but she was attractive and magnetic in her energy. But strangely, she is also remembered for something else, something trivial, the way she sneezed. Yes, her sneeze was very characteristic, and not just of her, but of her entire family, and mostly of her father. It was one of those sneezes that took some time to build, as to give people around some sort of warning As when it eventually came out, it was an explosion of expression, like a huge shout of happy relief. Was it because she and her siblings had learnt it straight from their father, 
we just shall never know, but this small detail is central to the story. I'm not quite sure how Mika met Edgar. At 27, she wasn't young by society standards. Edgar was 30 and had just been voted as the mayor of his little town, Lanaken, in Limburg, making him the youngest mayor of Belgium. As well as managing a prince's estate, he was at the head of his family's brewery. He was entrepreneurial, sanguine, loving and well-loved by his men, both in his work and his service to his little town. He asked for her hand in marriage as they waltzed together under the thousand lights of the candelabra. She hadn't dared to reply, no razor gaze to meet his eyes. Only the blushing on her cheeks had assured him that his feelings were indeed very much shared. There are many letters left of the correspondence between Mika and Edgar, and each one depicts the true complicity of a real team, equal in their partnership, interested in each other's opinion, and a deep love and tenderness for one another. Mika might have waited to be in her late twenties to marry, but she had found a kindred spirit. And soon, four children were born, very close to each other. And there would have probably been many more if the war hadn't poked its destructive little nose in. On the 4th of August 1914, German troops invaded Belgium. 14 days later, 5,000 German soldiers set up camp in Bilsen, only 15 kilometers from Mika and Edgar's houses in Lanaken. As the German troops moved forward, Lanaken's inhabitants fled. Mika and the four children, the youngest one only, a small baby, found refuge in Maastricht, across the Dutch border, Holland having remained neutral. They were safe. But of course, Edgar, as the mayor of his little town, stayed behind. He enrolled as a volunteer in the troops of General de Skepper, joining a group of eclectic soldiers made up of civil guards, gendarmes, and volunteers. Soon, in Lanaken, Edgar was leading a little group of 20 or 30 men, farmers, game wardens, and poachers. They were first armed with their own shooting guns, but soon with weapons captured from the enemy. For two months, they fought. The woods and the terrain of the countryside they all knew like the back of their hands, giving them a big advantage on the occupying troops. But it came at a cost. Of course, the enemy retaliated. And on the 4th of October, 1,500 men, armed with four machine guns and two cannons, surrounded the little town of Lanaken. The church was shot at, many houses were destroyed, and Edgar and Mika's houses was torn down, obliterated. Edgar and his men fought back and then eventually managed to retire into the woods, lose themselves in that environment they all knew so well. But no one is invincible, and three days later, at the close of a particular perilous mission, a single bullet brought Edgar's impetuous nature to a brutal end. He had the time to drag himself to the well of the village, throw his weapons and ammunition at the bottom of it before collapsing. He died that night whispering the name of Mika and his four little children. 
but the nun who was tending to his injuries and who was with him during the last moments said that his ultimate words were for God, his country and his king. At 32, and after only five years of marriage, Nika's life was upturned. She was a widow with four small children, businesses to run, and no house, no possessions. Was that going to diminish Mika in any ways? It appeared not. At the end of October, Mika and her four children came back from Maastricht. The nearby princely family for which Edgar was the manager welcomed Mika and the children at the castle of Patersem. They lived there for the duration of the war, cohabiting with the German occupant, first in two rooms. But Mika's diary describes how, with each change of garrison, they reclaimed a little space, and by the end of the war, they were living in half of the enormous castle. I do wonder how easy or difficult was the cohabitation with the enemy, as the madness of war stretched into its second and then third and fourth year, as civilians' clothes gradually turned to black, both in Belgium and Germany, I cannot but ponder, was there a certain respect between cohabiting sides? Did the children sometimes play with the German soldiers who were desperate to be reunited with their own offsprings? Did Mika smile at the occupant? Was she courteous? That we shall never know. There are some entries in her diaries about small events, like the day she convinced the German not to cut down an alley of centenary red beech trees by offering them a gramophone. However, what I do know is that behind the scenes, Mika carried on with the legacy of her late husband, and she became a resistant. By the end of the war, British planes had started appearing in the Belgium skies. The Royal Flying Corps, Two small and flimsy aircrafts were mostly involved in reconnaissance missions, photographic reconnaissance, artillery observation. Those missions were highly perilous. In April 1917, the average life expectancy for new British pilots was 11 days. Indeed, aviation was still a very new science. Training was minimal, Safety systems were basic to non-existent and pilots had no parachutes. When they were taken down from the sky, they simply crashed. And the pilots survived if they were lucky or if they were able to miraculously land the damaged aircraft safely. But for those lucky enough to survive crash landing, the ordeal wasn't over. If they weren't captured immediately, they found themselves in occupied territory, hiding often injured, in desperate need of help, food, and of course, a passage to neutral Holland. And that is where Mika came in. With the help of a sister who spoke perfect English and her father who had connections in different parts of the country, she became part of an underground network organizing safe passage across the Dutch border for those pilots fallen from the skies. And this young English pilot must have been one of the lucky ones. One October night in 1917, he had been brought to Mika's wood by one of her father's contacts. 
she had hidden the young man in a ditch, deep in the forest of the estate. In the dead of night, she would escape the castle with food, medicine, and information translated by her sister, who stayed with her at the time. She had fed him, nursed him, and when at last he was fit and strong enough to move on, she had organized his passage to the Dutch border through a network of escape lines. Was a friendship born? Did the pilot listen out for her light footstep on the forest floor, the crunching of leaves, twigs? Did his face light up when he heard her whispering his name? Did they spend some time together, speaking about home, his life before the war? I don't know. Sadly, many of Mika's diaries are to this day left unopened. But he must have been a well-brought-up young man, as somehow as he left, he kept hidden on his body a small note with Mika's name and address. He wanted to thank her properly after the war when all this madness was over, get her to sit at his table, share some food and wine and laughters and stories. He never reached Holland. The Germans intercepted him somewhere between the time he had left Mika's care and the border. And of course, he was searched thoroughly. And the small note he had carefully kept hidden must have been found. Because on the 17th of October 1917, just a few days after the pilot's departure, Mika's father went missing. And very shortly after that, the German boots resonated on the floorboards of Mika's rooms. The door flung opened and Mika was arrested. As she sat on the planks of her bed in the prison of Malin, the bare oppressive walls compressing her heart, the locked door of her cell staring at her loneliness and angst, fearful and unknowing of her future, I can only imagine what was going through her mind, ridden with worry for the safety of her four children, her sisters, and her father's, her dear papa. Where was he? Was he still alive? The days were endless, the hours stretching madly, but the nights were the worst, when one is left in the dark to contemplate her fears and her desperate need for food longing for touch, tenderness, and company of loved ones. Winter came with its dampness and cold, and Mika became weak. She tried to keep her mind occupied, with a sheet of paper, the lead of a pencil, and pricking the tips of her fingers with a needle to extract a drop of blood. She made the tiniest set of playing cards, still surviving to this day. And at Christmas, she used a little bread and saliva to make the smallest nativity scene, shaping each little character with utter care and precision. Did she think of her toddler at home? Did she yearn to feel the velvet of her skin, squeeze her little fat feet between her fingers when she shaped the round little body of baby Jesus? She had heard her children were safe and well with the nanny, Yet there was no news of her father. She could not bring herself to believe he was dead. She would have felt it. The connection was just too strong. He was alive, she was certain of it. But where was he? 
And then, one night, as the prison laid utterly quiet in the early hours of the morning, she heard it. A sneeze. But not any sneeze. One of those sneezes that took time to build, as to give people around some sort of warning, as when it eventually came out. It was an explosion of expression, like a huge shout of happy relief. She knew this particular way of sneezing, as she had heard it all her childhood. It was unmistakable. Her father. Her father was in there somewhere. The story passed down from generation to generation tells how father and daughter communicated with each other in Morse by tapping their spoon on the metal pipes of the plumbing system of the cells at certain times of the day. A little melody of metallic sounds linking them together despite the closed doors and the prison bars. A sweet little tune that made all the difference. Both Mika and her father survived. Mika was reunited with her four children in 1918. She went on to live a long life. She rebuilt her house and became an astute businesswoman. But she never remarried. And now, of course, I am left wondering, like you probably are, about the English pilot. Did he make it? Did he survive? Is his name hidden somewhere in Mika's diary? Time will tell, and I will certainly keep you informed if I hear of anything. It is now time for me to leave you. Thank you again a million for your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and on your podcast apps. I wish you all a very good month, and until we meet again in the airing cupboard, goodbye.